Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. My name is David Busis, and on today's episode, you'll be hearing a webinar with Rob Schwartz, the Assistant Dean of Admissions of UCLA Law. Rob begins by telling us more about his school, and then I interview him about law school admissions in general. We talk about the GRE, who gets in under the medians, and more. So without further ado, enjoy the webinar. Hi, everyone. If you don't know me, I'm David. I'm a partner at Seven Sage, and I am so pleased to host Rob Schwartz, the Assistant Dean of Admissions at UCLA Law. I'm going to let our colleague Celine Steelman introduce Rob from the shadows. Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Celine Steelman, and I'd like to introduce Rob Schwartz, Assistant Dean of Admissions from UCLA. Uh, he joined the UCLA School of Law in October 2006. After serving for 11 years as the Dean of Admissions at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law of Yeshiva University in New York City. As a 1992 graduate of Cardozo, he practiced law for several years before entering the law school admissions profession. And Rob has served on a number of law school admission council committees and most recently completed service as secretary of the board of trustees for the law school admission council. Thank you so much for joining us here at Seven Sage, Rob. Thanks, Celine. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. Yeah, Rob, could you just start by telling us a little bit more about UCLA Law? Sure. Well, I could tell you a lot about it. And um, I think what I'll start out by saying is I encourage anybody who's in the area or who's going to be in the area to come by for a visit and see the place for themselves. I think there's a lot of great law schools out there and students have a lot of choice and I think it's really important to visit the places that you're considering. So we offer the opportunity to come for a tour and to sit in on a class and um, to meet with one of us in admissions. So um, we are happy to uh, host you anytime you're in the area. But you know, I guess just a brief uh, summary uh, would be this. Uh, we, we're, first of all, located on the campus of UCLA. It's, for those that haven't been here, a really beautiful, beautiful place. We're about seven miles, I'd say, from the Pacific Ocean, from Santa Monica. Um, and uh, we bring in about 300 students every year. Uh, you'll find at most law schools, you take very similar courses in the first year. But there's two programs I would highlight that are different here in the first year. The first is a um, uh, orientation course. It goes for a full week uh, and you actually learn how to do law school before you start taking the real law school classes. And we're really proud of that. Uh, it's gotten a lot of positive feedback from both faculty and students and I think it just makes the transition into law school a little bit easier. And then in the spring semester students get to choose an elective. It's in a small group of about 20 students in a wide variety of areas that they might be interested in, whether it's environmental law or international law, um, wide range of courses for people, international law, just to, to get, get themselves exposed to, to different areas. Um, and then in the second and third year, it's kind of the opposite. There's about 200 classes to choose from. I think it's the hardest part about going to law school is deciding what to take in that second and third year. Um, there's seven, seven different areas where you can choose to specialize if you want to areas like business law and entertainment law, international law, uh, critical race studies program, public interest law. Um, <clears throat> and uh, besides that, there are about 40 different clinical programs. I don't know if 
many people listening know what a clinic is, but it's an opportunity to engage with real clients. And we're really proud of that. UCLA sort of was at the forefront of clinical legal education back in the 1970s. And today it has just a huge program with rooms with room for a lot of students to do a lot of good work. In fact, one of our most popular student organizations is called El Centro, where in, even in the first year, students are able to volunteer to help uh, and provide legal services with a variety of communities uh, in, in the LA area. So it could be the veterans, it could be the homeless, uh, low-income tenants, undocumented immigrants, people that need legal assistance. Our students, even in their first year, are able to get out there and, and do that kind of work. Um, and besides that, I would say, you know, we have a law review, but we have 14 other student-edited journals where students can kind of um, uh, have the opportunity to write uh, a scholarly article and help publish um, a scholarly uh, publication. So. That's a little bit about us. Uh, in brief, I could go on and on, but uh, happy to answer any questions that people have about the school either tonight or also later on. Thanks so much. So Rob, uh, most people here are about to apply to law school, but I think there's a lot of anxiety about what happens after they hit submit on LSAC. So I'm hoping you can just walk us through the process uh, from the time the file zooms through space and arrives on your computers and the time applicants hear back. Well, I would say that's the time they shouldn't be anxious. They're done. They hit submit. So they've done everything. And that's when people like me are supposed to be anxious because we get a lot of applications that we need to review. Um, but what happens is we have an admissions committee that begins reading applications. We usually start that process in late October, uh, early November, and it continues all the way through April. We, we read the applications as they come in on a rolling basis. And um, there's uh, most, most of the files are reviewed by admissions staff, people like myself, but there's also a faculty admissions committee that reads some files. There's also even some current students that read a small number of files for some of our uh, applicants. And um, the files are reviewed and decision. we try to get decisions out from most people within six to eight weeks. Um, in some cases, it can take longer than that, just depending on when uh, somebody applies. So if you're applying right around the deadline, that's when we get a lot of applications. We can get backed up a bit and things can take a little bit longer uh, to get out a decision. Thanks. Are files reviewed by more than one person? Yes, so every file would be looked at by at least two people. Um, and I, as Dean of Admissions, am sort of overseeing the whole process and kind of finalizing everything before decisions uh, go out. Got it. And you know, this might be a question where you just want to pass, but how, how do you decide like how it gets allocated to faculty or students or you or whoever? Well, it's a pretty random process about allocating the files. Um, the, uh, our admissions process is a little unique. Anybody who's seen our law school application will see that's a pretty long application. So there are, for example, there's, a, there's a, one particular program here, a specialization called the Epstein Program in Public Interest Law and Policy. And students interested in that, applicants interested, have to apply particularly to that program. And that means that those group of applicants will be reviewed not only by the regular admissions committee, lack of a better word, but also by the Epstein Admissions Committee, which consists of faculty as well as some current students that help review 
um, those files. Short of that, um, the Faculty Admissions Committee is used to look at a smaller number of files where, where admissions staff might want some input on those files, might want them to take a look at it for a wide variety of reasons. Um, Got it. Uh, what qualities are you looking for in an applicant in as much as you can generalize? Well, you know, our goal, I, I would say our goal is obviously to bring in a group of people who, who are going to be able to handle the rigors of the academic program here. And then beyond that, uh, a very diverse group of people who have a lot of different backgrounds and experiences and interests, uh, who ideally all will be collegial and collaborative and will be a pleasure to be around for three years and learn the law together. Um, so besides things like the LSAT score and the grades, which everybody knows are important and we're gonna look at, the kinds of things we consider uh, here are, are things like ability and interest in particular programs. One of, one of the questions on our application, it's an optional question, is are there any of our programs that you're particularly interested in that you think you could contribute to? I don't think people need to rack their brains to try to come up with something and answer that question, but if you're applying to UCLA for a particular program, it's definitely worth it to, to indicate that there. Um, also, um, you know, for example, let's say you have an interest in the critical race studies uh, program um, and you think you could contribute to that. That would be a, a perfectly uh, good time to express that in that optional question. So besides that, we're gonna look at things like work experience, community service, uh, public service leadership, obstacles that people have overcome, including socioeconomic background. Those are, I would say, most of the major factors that the admissions committee is gonna consider. I wanted to ask you about your programmatic contribution question. Sometimes it seems like those optional questions are non-optional. Are applicants at a disadvantage if they don't answer that? Absolutely not. It's there for, there's plenty of people we admit every year who don't answer that question. I, I, we may get into this a little bit later, but I do think it's important somewhere in the application, somewhere in the personal statement, at least for UCLA, to, to at least allude to why law school. Um, so you don't have to know that you're going into a particular area of law, but you should be able to express why you're thinking about applying to law school um, and uh, what's, what's attractive, what's attracting you to the program, even if it's not a specific program. Okay, so by the time you're done reading the file, whether that happens in the resume or the personal statement, you want to have a sense of why they're applying to law school. And I want to have some sense of that. You know, sometimes I'll read a personal statement that's incredibly interesting. It's a great story. And then I get to the end and I'm like, well, wait a minute, this is a law school application. So what's the point of this? Um, so that's got to be in there somewhere. Yeah. And do you also want to know by the end why they're applying to UCLA law? Or do you just assume that people have sort of blanket good school? It's uh, a good question. And I think everybody on our committee might feel a little bit differently about that. I, I think if you really are interested in UCLA, you don't need to be shy or modest about that on the application. On the other hand, we're aware that people are researching and investigating a lot of law schools, applying to a lot of law schools, and um, you know, by hitting submit, presumably they're at least somewhat interested. Um, so I don't think it's essential that they go into depth about that. But if you want to, I certainly don't see it as a, as a negative at all. Got it. Uh, Rob, we all know that 
50% of the people below your LSAT median, you know, get, or well, sorry, um, your LSAT median means that 50% of your accepted students are below it, 50% are above it. How often does it happen though that a student below both the LSAT and the GPA median gets accepted? Well, one of the things we do is we publish uh, through the official guide to US law schools, which is accessible at the LSAC, the Law School Admissions Council site. Schools have an option whether or not to include a grid there about their applicants. And it's, it's a very specific grid which lists uh, LSAT scores in relatively small bands and GPAs in relatively small bands. So there's no secret to any of this. Anybody can go on there and say, can plug in their numbers and say, oh, you know, I have an 8% chance of getting into UCLA based on what happened last year, or I have a, I have a 92% chance, right? And so um, off the top of my head, I don't know the answer to your question, but I could look at that chart and then answer it. Um, the majority of the students who enroll uh, certainly are what many people would call splitters, right? They have uh, one variable of those two above our median and the other below. So most people have an LSAT score higher than the median, a GPA below, or vice versa. There are some people who enroll uh, who have both numbers above, and that's a smaller number and, and probably a similar number to that that have both numbers below. Got it. Um, do the essays matter more for those students who are splitting your medians? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say it matters more for people that are splitting the medians because that's the majority of our students. So, um, you know, it, it, it matters equally. I guess another way to answer that would be, you know, not everybody who applies who has numbers above the medians is offered admission. And so why might that be? One reason might be that the personal statement was problematic. Uh, either with uh, uh, grammatical, usually I would say with some pretty serious grammatical mistakes or just some very awkward story there. So it's not going to happen a lot, uh, but, but it does happen. So I would say it matters for everybody. Um, could it matter more for people whose numbers are both below the medians that get admitted? Possibly, right? I think that in those cases, perhaps it was a really stellar personal statement or more than the statement, what it's saying about the person that, or other factors in the file that I described earlier, ability to contribute to programs or obstacles overcome or uh, work experience that's discussed that led the admissions committee to think that this is somebody we'd love to have at the, the law school. You know, all that said, uh, LSAT and GPA is important. You'll see that by looking at our grid, right? That's not a surprise to anybody. Law schools are ranked and, uh, you know, part of the way they're ranked is by their median scores. So we have to pay attention to that, which is uh, unfortunate, right, in some cases, because the LSAT is uh, obviously a good measure of uh, overall of success in the first year of law school, but small differences in scores uh, certainly uh, shouldn't play that big of a role in the admissions process. Well, speaking of predicting first year success by the LSAT, can you tell us more about your decision to start accepting the GRE? Sure, you know, I, it, was a, it was a law school decision, not just my decision, a faculty decision. And so I'm sort of speaking on behalf of the faculty here. My recollection of that and this is now going back two years, uh, because we, we started it in a smaller way then, was to 
make it easier to apply to law schools for people who are uh, in pursuing uh, other graduate programs and had thought about uh, pursuing a different graduate degree and then perhaps decided that they want to go uh, to law school. I really think that was the major uh, uh, crux behind it. Most of our applicants, even now that we've had a full year accepting the GRE, are still taking and submitting the, the law school admissions test. And that's what we expected. Yeah. Do you think that, um, I guess the simple way to ask this question is, do you think it's easier or harder or the same to get into UCLA with a GRE score? And I guess a more complicated way of asking it is, if, a, if an applicant has like a 95th percentile GRE score, are they sort of in the same boat or at a disadvantage or an advantage to someone who has a 95th percentile LSAT score? It's a good question. I think I'd want to, you know, I'd want to counsel that individual. I'd be happy to talk to that person because I'd want to know, I think, a little bit more about them, right? I'd want to know about their undergraduate grades. I'd want to know if they're in a graduate program, if so, where, how they're doing. Uh, but Absent any of those other facts, I still think, uh, if given a choice, I think a 95th percentile LSAT score, you know, all things else equal might be more impressive to the admissions committee. Um, but again, that's why I want to talk to the individual, because I wouldn't necessarily recommend that they go run out and take the LSAT because of that. So I'd want to get to know a little bit more about it. That makes Hopefully sense. that helps. It's so hard to answer these hypothetical, you know, as in just like a hypothetical, but that that's my sense. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Um, when you're reading a personal statement, do you care more about the content or the writing style or are they equal? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you gave me that option because I would say they are definitely uh, equal. Um, lawyers need to write. So we want to look at the personal statement uh, to get to get a sense of writing ability. Um, I'll also just take a second to say that we also will look at the LSAT writing sample, um, which I'm excited for the first time this coming year after doing this for more than 20 years will be uh, typed uh, as opposed to handwritten. Uh, it has yeah, been a real challenge and I still can't believe even in 2019 I'm reading these handwritten statements, but that is about to change. Um, so excited about that. And that, and I mention it because that's, uh, although under pressure, a better indication, right, of writing because um, it is clearly the applicant's own work and, you know, doesn't have, uh, hasn't been proofread by many people and hasn't had multiple drafts and, and that's useful too. But of course we take that into account when reviewing it. Um, so both are really important. You know, we want to get, you know, I, I wish I really do wish that we could interview everybody who applies to law school. We can't. We just don't have the resources to do it. We do interview a lot of people, uh, many at our request, most at our request. Now we're in waitlist season. We interview all of those people who are who we're considering admitting. But when we're in the crux of it, we had more than 6,000 applications last year. We just can't. So the reason I'm mentioning that is the personal statement is like an interview, right? So what would you want us to know about you? And so that's why the content matters. Um, but I would say the writing, the writing matters equally. And, um, and it, you would be surprised, I think, and I think a lot of people listening would be surprised just how many uh, mistakes uh, we see. The most common one being mentioning the name of another law school at the end of the statement. These are the reasons why I want to go to another law school. And you're like, oh, 
you know, and, and I know it's so easy to do because you're, we know you're applying to a lot of law schools and it, it, and you know, we can't not admit anybody who does that, but it really doesn't reflect well. And, it, and if you just take a few extra moments and carefully check before you hit that submit, uh, you can avoid something that a lot of people uh, do. Yeah, that's helpful to know. Um, I think a lot of applicants also wonder if they should write diversity statements, if they feel that they don't meet like a strict definition of diversity. And UCLA law is actually um, somewhat unique. Last year, it looks like you, you specified, you, you gave two prompts, one for a disadvantage statement and one for a disability statement. Would you encourage students to submit a sort of more optional diversity statement if they can't respond to either of those two prompts about, I don't know, growing up with adopted siblings or something? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. We're, we're actually going to expand upon uh, the sorts of things we're looking for there in this year's uh, application. So there will be a little more detail there. But we can never come up with every possible example of things the admissions committee would be interested in seeing. Um, that said, I do think there are some people who submit a diversity statement or optional addendum just because they feel they need to that more is better and more is not always better. And again, it's very hard to answer this question just in the abstract, but I do feel like if I was talking to an individual about their situation and what they were thinking about writing, I would be able to give a pretty good answer about whether or not I think that could, could help or hurt. Um, I think people, you need to recognize that uh, you know, these are people reading these statements that were under a lot of pressure to, to do it. We want to know as much as we can about you, but it's not necessarily helpful to write an extra statement that doesn't really add anything. Um, and, and it's not necessarily gonna preclude you from being admitted, but it's not gonna stand your application in good stead. I wish I could think of an example off the cuff, but it's just, you get done reading it and you're thinking, why did I, why did I just have to read that? You know, it, I was perfectly fine with this file before I read that. We may still decide to admit or recommend admit, but, you know, got to be careful about that. Um, I'm going to ask you two more questions before we open it up. Sure. First is for anyone who might be waitlisted, if that person has already submitted a letter of continuing interest, is there anything else she can do? Yeah, well, I think, um, again, you know, I, I want to, I don't know if I've been careful about this throughout, but but this is a good time to say, right, every law school could be different. And so with us, um, obviously I'm talking about, but any law school, it's okay to ask these questions. We give FAQs, frequently asked questions for people on the waiting list. Um, for us, you could send in additional letter of recommendation. You could, uh, if you're still in college, you could send an update on your, on your grades, uh, have an updated transcript sent in. If you have a new job, uh, you could share that with the admissions committee. But the letter of continued interest, far and away, is the most important thing you can do. And it doesn't have to be, again, at least for us, extensive uh, detail about why you want to go to UCLA. I think that could be helpful the first time. But if you're then going to write another one in a few weeks, and we suggest doing it about a monthly over the course of the summer, it could just be, hey, for the reasons set forth previously, I'm still here, I'm still interested. Because when the committee has spots, it's, we don't have a lot of time uh, to make those decisions. And 
uh, we're fortunate to have a good number of people on the list who want to come. So we want to look at those and focus in on those who are interested, as opposed to somebody who maybe was offered a spot on the waiting list in February, and then we haven't heard from them, and now it's June. Got it. Um, my last question is this. If an applicant is concerned about paying for her law school education, and really who isn't, what can she do from the very beginning of the process when she's applying in the fall to you know, maximize her chance of getting a nice scholarship? Well, I think we could have a, we could talk about that, I think for an hour. My short, there's so much to say about that in law school admissions, but my relatively short answer would be this, that to maximize your chances, you've got to apply to a variety of law schools. Um, and um, you still need to do your research, I think up front, but um, generally speaking, generally speaking, uh, schools are going to make scholarship awards either based on pure need, merit, or some combination thereof. We are a combination thereof. And so you're generally gonna, absent need, right? You're gonna get more scholarship money at law schools where you're admitted, where your LSAT scoring grades are higher than their, than their median. So that's how I would say you would maximize uh, your chances of getting significant scholarship assistance. Great, thanks so much. I'm sure that all of our attendees have a lot of questions for you. So I'm gonna open it up. And if you have a question, Schwartz, it would be great if you could just raise your hand. We like to call on people and hear from you yourself. Um, so let's just start. Oh, sorry. Oh, that's not going to work. Okay. To promote Kiara to panelist to call on her. Hi, Kiara. Whoops. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you, how are you? Good. Hi. All right, so um, my question is in line with um, what, we're what we were just talking about um, regarding scholarships. And I was wondering if the best way to receive a full tuition scholarship at UCLA will be to apply either through the Law Distinguished Scholars Program and the Law Achievement Fellowship Program, or if there are other possibilities to get full scholarships. Wow, you've done your research, I'm impressed. Uh, yeah, uh, right now, those are the only two full tuition scholarship programs that we offer at UCLA. The, the Distinguished Scholars Program, which is a binding scholarship program. Mm -hmm. um, so you need to know that if offered full tuition, this is where you wanna be. Mm -hmm. um, or the Achievement Fellowship, which is not binding. Um, and um, you can apply a little bit later in the process for that. Uh, but those are the only two for, for full tuition. But uh, about 80% of our students get a scholarship. And um, so there are other significant awards that are given to students, just not quite full tuition, but, but it can be close. Um, okay, and then for the Achievement Fellowship Program, would you say that you give preference to people that um, have overcome more difficulties rather than someone that just has academic merit? Well, I don't know if I would say more, but I, I would say overcoming uh, adversity is a key component uh, of um, the Achievement Fellowship. Nobody would be admitted to the law school that we didn't think had academic merit. But maybe put another way, I would say overcoming adversity would be, would be more important uh, if, if I had to pick one factor than the other than grades and test scores, um, although those of course are still gonna be very relevant. 
plus every finalist for that program is interviewed by a committee of, uh, of, of faculty and staff and alumni. Uh, we do it in different cities around the, around the country. Um, so, um, you know, I encourage people who uh, have overcome adversity, take a look at that on the website. It, we give some examples and uh, again, it's not a binding program. So, you know, if you're interested in UCLA, especially given a full tuition scholarship, it's worth applying for. Perfect, thank you. You're welcome, thanks for your interest. Of course, yeah. thank you. Okay, I'm gonna call on Darlene. You can unmute yourself and ask your question. Hi, so um, I'm reapplying to law school and I wonder if you have any tips to re for reapplicants, especially um, coming for, regarding the essays? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I think it's not necessarily a bad idea, Darlene, to check in with the individual schools that you're reapplying to um, and hopefully meet with an admissions person to ask them for their own individual advice and guidance. Um, here at UCLA, I would, we would welcome the opportunity to counsel anybody that's reapplying. The unfortunate reality is that most people that reapply here get a similar decision. So if you're denied admission the first time and you reapply, you're unfortunately, it's, it's no guarantee of that. And we make sure that the file is reviewed by different members of the committee, but it just tends to be the case. Not always, there's always exceptions. So we would wanna counsel you more on what can we do, what, what could you do to have a better chance? And the major thing is gonna be a change in LSA, LSAT score uh, or GRE score or grades if you were still in school. Um, because if you're just applying a year later, chances are other things haven't changed that much. If it's a couple of years later, maybe there could be more with regard to work experience or things like that. So we would welcome the opportunity to counsel you on that because at the end of the day, the advice might be, hmm, think about going to a different law school. And then if you still remain interested, think about applying to transfer too. Okay. Um, but, yeah, but specifically you. to get to your question, which I didn't do about on essays. Um, you know, I, whether or not to redo an essay or not, um, I, think, I think if there's new circumstances, then maybe you want to update, maybe an addendum. I don't think you necessarily have to write another, need, need to feel like you have to write another whole new personal statement from scratch, but you certainly can do so, but I wouldn't feel compelled to do so. Okay. And I had another question. Um, if the reapplicant will apply an early decision, how more, um, especially since uh, like I am eligible to receive free tuition at a UC law school under the Calvi fee exception for veteran dependents. So I was I I was wondering if um, applying early decision would help and mentioning that it's one of the reasons why UCLA is my first choice. Um, wow, very you guys have done a lot of research and very specific. So uh, yeah, I do think. Um, um, Applying to the early decision program can increase your chances of admission. Uh, it is going to be a much smaller group. We had about, as I said, about 6,000 applicants last year, maybe only 200 to the binding early decision program. That's different than the distinguished scholars program. It can get a little confusing. Uh, but yeah, if you know you have financial assistance to cover uh, tuition, that's one of the downsides to applying early decision is not knowing uh, and not being eligible for, for merit-based aid. So uh, absolutely, that could increase your chances. And that's an example of doing something different um, where being a reapplicant, it could make a difference. Thank you so much. Sure. Good luck. Thank you. 
Thanks, Darlene. Hey, Jack, you can unmute yourself and ask your question. <clears throat> uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes, hi, Jack. All right, hey, yo, so I was wondering, do admissions and you specifically put any more weight or uh, merit for uh, Division One athletes and more specifically Division One athletes who would have a really high GPA and say a double major? A high GPA and what? A double major. A double major. So there's a lot in there. I, I think that, um, uh, so being a, an athlete is, is, I would put that under the, under the broad criteria of leadership, which is, I mentioned earlier is a factor we look at. So absolutely that's considered uh, a positive. I think, you know, having gone through uh, uh, being part of an athletic program like that is rigorous and it, it's good preparation for law school, which is also rigorous of a different type. Um, high GPA is always good. Um, what was the third part of it? Well, I was, I was, I was just like- Oh, double major. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all three in one person <laughs> who happens to be an athlete. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, a double major is not a bad thing to have, especially if you've done well. I think if I was advising somebody who is deciding whether or not to do a double major, I would say to them, don't think about the law school admissions process. Think about other things, you know, your education, how interested you are, uh, you know, is this, is this what you want to do? Are you going to give up the opportunity to take other classes that you would want to take in college, things like that. But all that said, sure, it's, it's going to be a positive. Keep in mind that none of this is, it's not a formula, right? It's a holistic review process. And so it's not like we're checking boxes. Okay, this person had a double major. This person was a division one athlete. This person overcame adversity. These are just all things we're looking at along with the stories and grades and test scores and trying to make difficult decisions. We were talking a little bit earlier, some, some people were online already about doing a mock application review one day. And I think when you, when you throw yourself in there, imagine if this was you doing it. There's, it, it's very difficult to make these decisions and there's no right or wrong answers. And that's why you have to apply to a, a wide variety of schools and give a lot of thought to the process of where to apply. I hope that helps. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. Maya, you can unmute yourself. Hi. Um, I was just hope, wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what the application process is like for internationally educated students. Um, I grew up in the USA, but I went to college in the UK and I've heard that the GPA is unreportable after it's translated. So how will this affect my chances? Right. Well, uh, so nice to meet you, sort of, Maya. Um, so great question. And so you still sign up for the Credential Assembly Service, which is part is a package you get through the Law School Admissions Council, and they will analyze your transcripts. Um, they will not, you're right, they will not report a uh, GPA to us. I think it could be helpful in a case like that for you to provide us, if you want, with an addendum talking a little bit about, if you want to, about the grading structure and things like that. Um, but otherwise, we're just going to look at the transcript and try to evaluate it as, as best we can. We admit uh, students who were internationally educated uh, every year. Um, you know, I, the LSAT could be more important in a case like that. Um, uh, not absolutely so, but it could be. Great, thank you. You're welcome, good luck. Thanks. Thanks, Maya. Sam Smith. 
you can ask your question. Hi, Sam. Hello. Hi, Sam. Hey. Uh, I had a quick question about uh, kind of making a decision about what kind of like program during law school that you want to study and how that relates to like the admission process. Uh, so recently I got a great opportunity to go to a law firm out in Kansas City, Missouri uh, to talk to lawyers about the decision to do the specific program that they do now. Um, and I was just trying to figure out because I know that there are certain schools such as UCLA, which has like very specific programs which are very tailored to um, going into a certain field, but during that application process, is it like a really big advantage or does it matter at the same rate um, if someone knows which program exactly they want to do or if they're just open-minded to doing anything? Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, it's important for you to be yourself in the application process and that way you'll, you'll find a good match hopefully with another school. But I think first of all, people that do apply that say that they want to do this or that, that's what they think they want to do. They're not entirely certain right? Entertainment law is one of our specializations at UCLA, given that we're here in LA. And a lot of people think they want to do that, but they've never taken contracts yet, right? Which is a big part of entertainment law. So they don't know for certain. Uh, and you can oftentimes, just like many of you probably did in college, change your mind about what you're interested in and what you want to major in. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with going to law school with an open mind, not being certain what area of law you want to get into. And there's nothing wrong with during your upper years in law school, taking a wide variety of classes uh, that will expose you to many different areas of the law. So I, I don't see that as a disadvantage at all. Okay, excellent. Because I actually, I'm in a situation where I'm looking specifically at schools and maybe not as much ever since I kind of heard that, um, looking at like schools that have really good intellectual property programs, because that's a certain area of study that I'm particularly interested in. But of course, you know, I'm in that crux because during college, I switched my major two times. I don't, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So I thought that it could have always changed. And I didn't know if that was going to constrict me too much if I decided, okay, I only want to look at schools that do well with this program and stuff like that. Um, and like, especially, you know, how they relate to if I get accepted more at a certain school that does that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think if you have an idea of an area that you're interested in, it absolutely makes sense to look at the curriculum of the law schools you're looking at and to make sure that they have some depth in that area. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, so that it'll be there for you to experience, but just recognize that you may change your mind as you go through. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. Good luck, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Rob, I want to ask some questions from sure. um, the question box. Okay. Derek asks, how do you view the GPA of applicants from a school with GPA deflation and a difficult major like computer science? Yeah, it's a great question. So we do, we do take that into consideration, the major. One, one, one piece of information we get from the Law School Admissions Council when they produce your what's called your CAS report, your Credential Assembly Service report, is both your cumulative GPA and your major GPA and how that compares to applicants to law school at that school over the last few years. So we do have a pretty good sense for most places of, of you know, where there might be some grade deflation. But one of the questions on our application is optional, but says, is there anything you wanna tell us about your, either your standardized test taking history or your academic performance? And it's there where you could write some extra words about your uh, your grading curve, anything you want to share with the committee, we are interested in hearing that. That's where you would do that. Um, and you know, um, like I was saying earlier, this is uh, it's a holistic process. We are we are absolutely taking the rigor of the course and the major into 
uh, into effect. But I think it's important also for law school applicants to understand who look at law school rankings, right, that we are, again, as I mentioned earlier, we're ranked based on median GPA. We're not ranked on, oh, well, you know, are you given credit even though your median GPA is lower because you have people who uh, were from schools with grade deflation or who were in a science major. And so we're trying to balance all of these factors. I just want people to understand that they're all factors that matter. So yeah, being grade deflation, being in a, in a, in a science major or computer science, for example, where grades are lower is something the committee's gonna consider. On the other hand, we have to make sure we pay attention to what our median GPA is gonna be at the end of the day. Thank you. So this person who wishes to remain anonymous asks, have you ever read a personal statement from an otherwise really strong applicant above the medians that made you reject them? We know the answer is yes. And what things in the personal statement can have this effect? And I'm just gonna add, other than some things you've already mentioned. So other than being sloppy, other than mentioning the wrong school or typos, are there other things that can make you reject otherwise very strong applicants? It's a great question, um, and uh, I think I have to be careful here because I don't want to give away too much information, but, um, you know, this is what I'm going to say, just maybe an inappropriate uh, personal statement without giving an example, and I'm sorry that that's not maybe that helpful, but the advice would be to have people look at this, people that don't Obviously, you can't stop a stranger on the street, but you can ask somebody that doesn't know you that well and to ask them to do you a favor and to say, look, you don't know me all that well. You have just a few minutes to get to know me. What do you think about this? Um, and I think if you're writing about a topic that could be controversial, you need to be a little bit careful. On the other hand, you have to be yourself and who you are. So we've, you know, we've had people just write about topics that just don't seem appropriate for a personal statement. Uh, maybe there's some graphic inappropriate language. Uh, you know, people could probably use their imagination to come up with some, some of these examples. I'd rather not get too specific. Sure. Rob, I've spoken to applicants who have dealt with things like a chronic illness, and sometimes it's something like Crohn's disease um, or a gastrointestinal illness, so it feels a little personal. Um, you know, is there a way to write about that in an appropriate way, in your opinion? You know, this is always the uh, dilemma, right, in, in a law school application. I mean, you know, it's not like the document is becoming public and, you know, going to be shared with, uh, you know, many, many people. I think to the extent, though, that you're comfortable sharing, you know, one of the questions on our application, again, which is optional, is any disabilities or any obstacles you've overcome. So to the extent that these things have impacted you and your ability, or for example, let's say a semester uh, in college wasn't uh, as strong as others because you're uh, um, were ill for whatever reason or dealing with, with, with something personal, um, I, think, I think you do wanna try as best you can to leave those types of questions unanswered. You don't want somebody reading your files saying, hmm, you know, what happened here? On the other hand, what happened may be something that you just aren't comfortable uh, discussing. And so um, that's a choice you know, that you have to make, but there may be a way to even include something in there uh, to say that, you know, look, look that you, you at, at a very minimum, 
that you're acknowledging it, you know, that you hope the admissions committee can, uh, you know, they're going to see it. Uh, so can, can put less weight on that. You were dealing with a very personal issue that has since resolved itself as is shown and you are ready for law school work, but just the fact that you're acknowledging it, I, I think could be, could be helpful. Thanks for that. Let's turn back to some people who are raising their hand. Charles Watkins, you can ask your question if you'd like. Hi, can you hear me? Hi, Charles, how are you? Good. Um, I'm really interested in your school and I had a question if you know anything um, or have any experience with it. The entertainment symposium that's annual at UCLA, do you have any experience with it or know how you know it might affect the students and what they've said about it? Well, yeah, it's, I, I, I'm not, I, it's a wonderful uh, symposium that I, is over 40 years old now and brings in lawyers and uh, other practitioners in the field from all over. Uh, and our students do get to attend it, get to volunteer and get to network and meet a lot of people there. Every year we're able to get a few of our admitted students in there to witness part of it. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I just wanted to know, um, is there, is there anything that, um, if you wanted to go into the different Center for Media, Entertainment, Technology, and Sports Law, is there anything that you know you should let the admissions committee know about? Or is it just something that once you get there, you should be able to test the waters alongside any of the other um, fields of law that you might want to go into? Yeah, well, both. I think you're welcome to, on our application, answer that optional question to say you're interested in the Ziffrin Center and talk a little bit about why. Um, but that doesn't commit you to deciding to specialize in that area. And most of our students, at the end of the day, may not choose to specialize in something. So it just means you're, as you say, testing the water. That's, those are good words. And taking some classes and seeing if that's something you like. Um, once you're here, you can choose any of the other specializations, with the exception of the Epstein Public Interest Program, which you'd have to apply to at the end of your first year. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Charles. Kavisha, I'm promoting you to panelist so that you can talk because you have an older version of Zoom. Hi there. Hi, hi. Um, I question um, relating to a previous question about being an international applicant. I'm Canadian, um, so I'd be applying from a Canadian school, and I wanted to know, um, you know, kind of how your school views Canadian applicants. Um, for example, would you say that our LSAT is maybe a little bit more considered within the application process than the GPA would be? Um, and also in terms of fi like financial rewards, like would you rather, do you have a preference for, for American applicants over Canadian applicants? Um, and maybe just anything else that, that I need to know applying from outside of the United States. Well, I certainly wouldn't say we have a preference, you know, for, for more. I would say in the financial aid area, unfortunately, it is, we are not able to consider need for international applicants because one of the things we need to do that is a U.S. tax return. Uh, that said, we can work with people individually once they're admitted and, you know, do our best to try to get you a, a competitive package. Um, right. In terms of the first question about the LSAT, I would say not necessarily. It really depends where you went to college. Many of the Canadian schools... Um, are similar to, to mm -hmm. they look similar to the American schools in terms of uh, the information that's provided on the CAS report from LSAC. So, you know, if somebody's at, there's certain schools where there's a lot of uh, mm -hmm. 
applicants too. And so they give us the same information that we get for an American school. Okay, thank you. Uh, just one more question, um, kind of jumping off of what you just said. Um, I go to I go to West University, and I wanted to know if if there if, you, if you've heard of that school, if you have if you have um, students from that school. Um, so I know University of Toronto and, and McGill are like the big ones from Canada, but I don't know if if you've had a lot of Western applicants. Uh, I've certainly heard of it. Um, okay. I, I I don't know that we have any current students here now from. Okay. But if you shoot me an email, I'm happy to look and check and see if we could put you in touch with somebody. Um, so you're near. That'd be great. You're near Toronto. Yes. Yes. Because no? we will be, we expect to be at the Toronto Law Forum uh, on right here, September. Oh. Uh, which, if you haven't heard of, is a great opportunity to mix and mingle. Not that we want to encourage you to consider other schools, <laughs> but they will all um, be there. And you can mix and mingle and chat with other uh, with uh, admissions folks like myself and, and others there. September 16th, you said? Yep, it's on the LSAC website. Okay. Be from 1 to 6 p.m. at the Hyatt Regency Toronto. I feel like I'm doing a commercial. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you so much. I'll definitely look into that. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Kev. Rob, Eric asks, how do you view an applicant who has taken the LSAT multiple times? Should uh, write an addendum? Yeah, good question. So um, again, no, there's no set formula to how we might view an applicant and somebody might have taken it twice and somebody might have taken it 10 times. My advice to people is, unless you love taking standardized tests, go into the test thinking you're gonna take it once, but try not to be too nervous because you know if you don't have your best day for whatever reason, you can take it again. We're gonna put a lot of weight on the highest score um, we will consider all scores and look at all scores. Why do we put a lot of weight on the higher score? Because that's the score we ultimately report to the ABA and for ranking purposes. That said, if you take the test a lot, that doesn't necessarily reflect, uh, you know, we, we kind of wonder then what's going on and why are all these scores all over the place and what's happening. So um, I think you want to do it sparingly. Um, two or three times is fine. More than that, I think we start to wonder what's what's happening and what, why is this why is this why is this happening? Got it. Another anonymous attendee asks, would it be of any benefit to have a letter of recommendation from a UCLA law alum? So great question. We didn't talk about letters of recommendation, and I think we are very uh, we leave it open to you who to submit the letters from. So we require two letters and we leave it to your judgment as to who's gonna write the best letter. And I would answer this question as I would about any advice about who to write the letter. It really doesn't matter all that much who's writing the letter, but what they're saying and how well they know you. So if a UCLA law alum knows you really well and writes an incredibly strong letter, that's great. I would say that's better than somebody who knows you equally well and would write an equally strong letter and is not a UCLA law alum. But if you got somebody else out there who knows you better, who's gonna write an even stronger letter, then um, that I would go with that. So, you know, it's the context, right? If the UCLA law alum was your neighbor, I'm just making this up, you know, growing up and they say, you seem like a nice person and, you know, but they don't, they haven't really uh, seen you demonstrate any of the skills you're gonna use in law school uh, or as an attorney, um, that's really just more like a personal reference and not all that helpful. So I hope that, hope that answers it. Great. 
Another one from the box, are postgraduate like master's degrees considered? Also, are military academy grades considered differently given the unique rigors of those programs? Okay, so two questions, the, the, the last one first. So yeah, sure, again, I think it's similar to what we were talking about with perhaps STEM majors, you know, people that have lower grades. Uh, we see that from many military uh, schools, but you're also welcome to include your own detailed information on that. And the first one again, I'm sorry, was? The first one is to what extent do you consider postgraduate degrees? Yeah, so advanced degrees. Uh, I would give a similar answer to the double major, right? That it's a plus, but if somebody were, so if you have an advanced degree and you've done well, great. But if you were saying to me, oh, I'm, you know, I didn't do very well in undergrad, I think I'm gonna go off and get this advanced degree. I think I can do really well there. And that's gonna help me get into law school. I'd say that that's crazy. Um, don't do something like that just to get into law school. Um, but sure, it's going to be considered a plus in the in the admissions process. Great. Fiona, do you want to ask your question? Hi, Fiona. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you um, if you're a reapplicant, should you <coughs> sorry, should you have like <laughs> an essay about <laughs> being a reapplicant, like for instance, if you do better on the LSAT, and should you use the same personal statement? Uh, all good questions, all hard to answer, perhaps without knowing a little bit more about your overall file, but I guess if I was giving general advice, it's hard, right? I, you could use the same personal statement, but I think if there's things that have changed in the year that you wanna update us on, it's important to do that as well. Certainly if you're doing better on the LSAT and you have a reason for that, you should include an addendum on that. We asked that question, is there anything you wanna tell us about your standardized test, take, test taking? So you could certainly say I wasn't you know, feeling well on the first day, I was nervous, what, you know, there was a motorcycle convention outside the window, we, we had that one year. You know, whatever it is, feel free to uh, share those circumstances with us. You don't wanna leave us guessing. Uh, is, I guess, my best advice. I hope that helps. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks, Rob, we've got a wonky question in the box that I love. Okay. Does distance from the median or the 25th slash 75th percentiles matter? For example, if the 25th percentile GPA is a 3.6, is there any difference in your eyes between a 3.4 and a 3.1, given I think that the 3.4 and the 3.1 are not going to change what you report to the ABA. Yeah, exactly. So, right. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know if fun is the right word, but, um, you know, in selecting the candidates, right, that are going to be below the median, uh, since we have to pay attention to these medians more than I think most admissions people, I can't speak for all admissions people, but I think men, more than many would like to. Uh, you can have a little more fun in quotes, right, with, with admitting those that are going to be below. And so the short answer is, you know, no, I mean, it doesn't have any impact on that. So all the other factors that we were talking about matter more, right? Where is the 3.1 and where was it earned? When was it earned? What was the, what was the trend of the grades? What was the major? What kind of work experiences? There are all the other things that we might, how are the recommendations, you know? All of these things are, are factors that are going to go in to that, um, and, and how do we, and, and, and ultimately, how do we think that person will perform uh, academically? That's a nice sort of silver lining for people who are 
below the median. Brian Rodriguez, do you want to ask your question? Yes, hi. Hi, Brian. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I was going to ask, uh, at UCLA, would you guys look down upon applicants who are younger and maybe completed their undergrad in two or three years? And if you do look down on them, what would you say that they should do to increase their chances of admission outside of GPA or LSAT scores? Yeah, great question. We didn't talk about that at all. I, 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 first of all, no, we would not look down to answer your question. Um, of course, I have said work experience matters, and it does. But if you know that, you're, that you want to go on to law school and you've graduated college in two or three years and this is what you want, it's what you've always wanted, you're diehard going to law school, there is no reason why you should not apply. Um, but we do have less generally to evaluate you on than we might somebody who's been out of school for 10 years. So, right, there's going to be less work experience. So the grades and the test scores may matter more along with the recommendations. But um, I would say about a third of our class right now comes right out of undergraduate school. So that's not an insignificant number. It's still a good chunk of people. And we can still look at things like leadership, community service, uh, summer work experiences, things like that, that'll, that'll be important. Um, so you might want to highlight some of those. Uh, but if this is what you want, I, I, I see no reason why you shouldn't uh, go for it. I hope okay, that helps. Yeah, yeah, it does. Thank you. You're welcome. Good luck. Thanks. So we've got a converse question from anonymous attendee who asks, to what extent have you personally observed prior work experience determining one's success in law school? Uh, personally observed? Well, you know, we, we do uh, look at how our students do that we've admitted to the extent that can help us predict future. I think my 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 sense, this may be too general though, is that, you know, students who return to law school, who have been out in the working world for a while, who have had a job, uh, you know, treat law school more like a job. And I think they generally tend to do well. That's not to say that people who come right out of undergrad do not do as well. Uh, but I think those who have had jobs are, find it a little bit more easy to structure their, their time, so to speak, and treat it more like a job. Hopefully that answers that question. Yeah, that makes sense. Hi, Kira. Do you want to unmute yourself? Hi there. Hi, Kira. First, thank you so much for doing this. Sure. I have two questions. The first should be really quick. Um, how much do you take into account if people visit UCLA prior to applying? Well, we wouldn't really take that into account at all. The visit would be more informational for your purposes than for you know, your chance of being admitted. Um, and even if you meet with me or another advisor, it's not really a formal interview. Although I guess my advice would always be to, you know, uh, behave. Uh, but um, um, so I, I, I would say you would do that more, more for your own benefit. I would say though, when we're looking at the waiting list, uh, we are considering expressions of interest. So one such expression would be coming to visit. Um, or equally uh, expression of interest would be sending a letter of continued interest. But uh, coming to visit, I would view it more for your own benefit. And whether you want to do that up front or whether or not you want to do it once you're admitted, you know, uh, either, either or is fine. Great. Thank you. 
And then when you have your team looking through the application packets, is there some sort of a metric or rubric for the way in which the order in which they look at items? I know there's sort of a rumor that in law school admissions, you're in the in pile or out based on, or the review pile or straight throw in the trash pile um, based on um, your numbers. And I'm wondering if that actually holds water. Um, so the second part of what you said, you know, definitely not every file is read. I mean, in, term, in terms of the order of, I think this is what you're asking of, 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 you know, do we look first at your transcript or at a recommendation or at your personal statement? Um, every person on the admissions committee is free to do it however they want. I mean, mechanically, uh, you know, we receive these documents electronically from the Law School Admissions Council and they're, they're in a certain order. So it's easiest to read them in that order and that order is the application first, all the questions followed by the personal statement, followed by the, um, so that's one document. And then another document is the Credential Assembly Service Report, which summarizes your, uh, your transcript and you provide your LSAT score and then your writing sample and then your, your actual transcript and followed by last by your letters of recommendation. So in those documents, the personal statement comes last, the letters of recommendation come last. Personally, I switch it up uh, during the course of the year. Uh, not that you guys should feel so sorry for me, but imagine if you know that was your job and you're reading all of these things, um, you, you can't do too much for excitement, but you know, it, I, I do find it helps me to just switch things up a little bit. So maybe for part of the year, um, I might just go straight through, you know, each document. And then for part of the year, I might be like, you know, I want to read the personal statement first. I, I, before I even know anything else, I want to just take a look at that and see what that is. And other times of the year, just look at the LSAT person and, you know, mix and mix and match. Um, but it's harder, right, to be honest, to do that because you have to scroll through the doc through the documents. But we don't have any set policy on it is the bottom line. And we look at everything carefully. You know, look, that said, if somebody has a 120 on the LSAT and a, you know, a 1.8 GPA, somebody's going to pick up that file and they're going to read it and they're going to read the personal statement, but it, it's going to be hard to get admitted. There's going to be something incredible in there. Got it. Okay. Thank you so much. Sure. I hope it helps. It does. Thank yeah. You. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, it's 10. So... Rob, I want to thank you so much for coming and for uh, sharing more about UCLA law and the admissions process and just answering question after question. You must have felt like you were taking 100 swings. Hope your shoulder's not too sore. Yeah, you're, you're welcome, David. I really appreciate the opportunity to do it. I can't believe how much interest there was. Um, I'm happy to provide my email if you think it would be helpful for people if they want to follow up, uh, although it is on our website, so it's not like it's... Uh, it is publicly available, but it's just schwartzr uh, at law.ucla.edu. And I'll do my best to answer questions. There are like, I see 180 of you on here now. So if I get 180 emails tomorrow, it might take me a while, but I uh, will do my best to get back to you and answer any questions, extra questions that you guys have. Thanks for that offer. That's really generous of you. Sure. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for your time and uh, have a good evening. Have a good Thanks, evening. Rob. Yep. T take care, Celine. Thank you for everything. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for coming, everyone. Hi, it's David again. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please give us a rating on iTunes or Google Play. 
And if you're looking for more information about law school admissions, head on over to sevensage.com slash admissions.